Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Whether you're here online, if everyone told me they were watching who's watching, hi, Meg, Morgan, Jeff, and Denny. Otherwise, uh, they'll see it later on the recording. Um, Scott George just walked over to me before he left and said, do you want me to carry the music mic up for you? And I was like, no, you can carry me up, though. Uh, Because in the last service, I couldn't handle it. Anyway, um, Hi, I, this is always weird because I don't know who knows me or doesn't know me, but my name is Peter Hartwig, a name you may have heard before. My dad is Pastor Pete. I am not Pastor Pete. I would like to make that very clear. Um, uh, but it's graduation weekend at UVA. My sister is graduating. There's like a 40% chance I get texts of photos of her on this iPad while we're up here and I'll have to pretend to ignore them. Um, uh, but it's, uh, grad- anybody here a graduate? I'm not going to make you stand up and bring you a present. But oh, welcome. Thank you for bringing your parents. You're the varsity squad. Yeah, a round of applause. Why not? Uh, so my sisters, you might think there's some like very spiritual reason I'm the one preaching. I'm not. My parents wanted to go see my sister walk, and I was next in line. Um, I graduated from UVA in 2016, so I feel young. And I uh, just graduated um, seminary. Uh, which is, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's three years long, and they um, said Peter Joseph Hartwig. And it's like one second for every year of seminary. That's the kind of glory you get. Um, So uh, when I was in college uh, at UVA, people would say this thing that I frankly loathed, where they'd go, college is the best four years of your life. And I was like, geez, I hope not. I mean, like, for a number of reasons. It was good. It was really good. It was, like, good. Not, like, end your life good, though. And also, if, like, that's where it peaked, this was going to be a long, like, a long walk to death, was if, that's, if that was really the best it got. But it is, like, it's a drastic change to leave college. It's a time of transition. Um, I, I think it's one of those moments which are various in a human life uh, where things kind of, like, get more real. Do you know what I mean? So, like, college is, no offense, college is basically expensive babysitting, which I loved deeply. You pay, like, one bill, and it's, like, everything, maybe two, if you're in a fraternity or something. Um, And uh, there are all these super helpful parameters. Like, after I graduated college, I had this crisis. I was like, what do you ask people when you meet them? You can't be like, what's your year in major? To, like, a 50-year-old banker? Like, that doesn't make any sense. But, like, college has these kind of parameters which are a touch artificial, not bad, maybe a bit artificial. And you like, your social circle is 15,000 people at most. And then you graduate into the world, and like, no one knows who you are or what you do. And there's like just a horizon of human beings. There are no majors to ask about. And it just, it's like, it's like a shift in life where things kind of get, they get more real is like the way I kept thinking to say it. I'm sure there are other things that do this, like maybe retirement. You've like done something for a long time and now some, it just, the shape of your life hits you like when you have your first child, which I haven't done, don't worry. And, um, and you like stare at its frail little body in your arms, which you have made. And you think, oh my gosh, that's the rest of my life. Like, it's all right there. I have to nurture this creature into the world, and I could so mess it up. 
Um, which is the primary reason I don't have a child. Uh, or you could, you know, there's like these moments they just, and again, I just finished seminary, where you basically just read theology and philosophy for three years, which makes you only less interesting. And uh, one of the interesting things that you've kind of learned, and like the modern philosophers who, who, you know, are still alive and made our world, is that, is that we live in a period of history where people are very aware that like somewhere, maybe it's in our heads or it's in the center of our chest, but there's some part of us that like bumps up against the world in like big ways. Maybe like those big life, they kind of, like you can imagine what it would be like <clears throat> for the sky to be purple. But if you saw the sky purple, it, you're not entertaining an idea. You're like, you can entertain what it would be like to have a child or to get married or for four years, maybe graduate college. And then it, it like knocks on the door and opens it and you're staring there at a big life sh- and it just like hits you. And it's maybe a little scary or maybe really joyful. And I'm pretty convinced, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty convinced that almost all of us to a person have a deep hope and desire that the Christian faith is like that. That it like hits there. I mean, I'm a, I'm a professional theologian. I totally know what it means to entertain ideas about God. And if I told you now about the technical distinctions of Trinitarian theology, few of you would be moved. But, but more than entertaining an idea or just like something you do or a kind of practice, although ideas and doing are very important to sort of like hit you on the existential level. I had a professor in college who defined faith as existential trust. He said that's what Paul thinks faith is. It's not intellectual assent. It's not just doing something. It's existential trust. And this is Pentecost Sunday, which is why I'm wearing pink, also because I'm very secure. And <clears throat> um, usually Christians wear red on Pentecost Sunday because, you know, well, you'll see why in a minute. Usually we're red, but I don't own any red. I do own one red shirt. My dad was like, that's a winter shirt. You can't wear that to preach. Like, you care. And so I wore pink instead because I thought it was closer and more seasonable. But, but Pentecost is, is, a, is one of the few named Sundays in the Christian faith, one of the few named Sundays that City Church celebrates by name. You know, there's Easter and, in a weird way, Christmas. But Pentecost is a, is a holiday that celebrates the Holy Spirit in particular. And so I'd like to submit to you this morning that if you want Christianity to be like real, or if you want to know how Christianity gets real, the Holy Spirit's the answer. There's, there's this way in which the Spirit can do things that, not to, not to annoy him, but not even Jesus can do. And so I want to take a look at Pentecost that way. I told my dad that I wanted somebody to read the whole Acts 2 account. And he's like, that takes six minutes. You'll lose them. So I won't do that. But, um, if, you know, you might remember that it goes like this. Jesus lives. You know, he is born. And then he lives a life. And he does a lot of teaching and miracles and exorcisms and meets a lot of interesting people. And then... He is crucified, which is sad, but he's resurrected, which is surprising and very positive. And then he spends 50 days, 40 days resurrected, kind of um, doing a bit of an appearing vaudeville act. Like he'll show up and he'll be like, touch my scars, and he'll tell them something and he'll disappear. And so he does that for like 40 days where he teaches them a lot about how, uh, uh, how they will read scripture, the disciples, not just the 12, like a whole group of people. He teaches them a lot of stuff. And then he goes, all right, I'm going to go to be with the Father, but you wait for 10 more days, and then, and then something will happen. 
And um, there was an ancient uh, Jewish festival called Shavuot, and in Greek it's called Pentecost. And it happens 50 days after Passover. So Passover celebrates the, uh, the freedom of the Israelites from uh, slavery in Egypt. It's kind of their central moment. And then 50 symbolic days later, you celebrate the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. So there's Pesach, Passover, and then Shavuot, Pentecost. And so Jesus is resurrected, uh, Passover Sunday, and then 40 days of wandering, 10 days after his ascension, ta-da, 50. I'm bad at math because I'm a good theologian, but as I count it, 50 days after he's resurrected, Pentecost. So can you see what's happening? There's kind of a Passover Pentecost thing going on. And on that Pentecost, in what would be about the year 30 AD, uh, the Bible says this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, the disciples, were all in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire, hence the red, appeared on them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, I guess the wind and the languages, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear them, each of us, in his own language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues, languages, the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mockingly said, ah, they're filled with new wine. They're drunk. That's, that's what happens on this Pentecost Sunday. And I'd like to submit to you that on that particular Pentecost Sunday, there's an interesting way in which Christianity gets real. And like, of course it would happen on Pentecost. Pente um, so, so if you think about what it means for God to give the law to Moses, uh, you know, you're ancient Jews now, imagine with me, and you've lived under oppressive forces for a couple hundred years, and finally you've gotten free and now what? Like, what are you going to... Like, like, the weight of freedom has hit you. And so God gives them the law to, like, tell them what to do and what to say and how to run a court system and how to worship. And he gives them a life. He gives them an identity. He gives them a culture. And he says, that's, kinda, that's the culture I want you to have. And, and you're going to see this idea all through the New Testament that the Holy Spirit does for the Christian church what the law does for ancient Israel. If you don't believe me, go read Galatians. It takes like an hour. This, this idea that, well, the law told ancient Israelites what to do and say and how to worship and how to be together and what to eat. And, and Luke and Paul, they're going to say, well, it's the Spirit that does that. It's the Spirit that teaches what to eat and say and how to think and how to be together, like how to be a community together. You know this, like you've worked at institutions or organizations and they have a kind of personality. They sort of have like a spirit. My college acapella group had a very weird personality. And that was the first time I was like, hmm. Do you know what I mean by this? I was like, everybody in the group's like me, but I don't know if the group likes me. You know what I mean? Like I get along with everybody and it's all good fun, but there's like a, 
the Holy Spirit is supposed to be like the personality of the church. And he looks a heaven of a lot like Jesus. And, and so there's this sense in the book of Acts that, that Jesus' own personality, Jesus' own spirit, is supposed to become real in the church. Not in like a woo-woo spirit way, but the same God who is in Jesus is the God who's in the spirit, and, and he is forming the church into a people. And there's a change in Peter. You know, like, I don't know if you recall this, but Peter doesn't come off so well in the Gospels, right? Like, this is the man who uh, Jesus goes like, and what do people say? What do you say about me? And Peter goes, oh, you're the Messiah. And then like a chap- and the chapter later, Peter goes like, oh, but you can't get, you can't die though. And then Peter go- uh, Jesus goes, get behind me, Satan, which is aggressive. And so like, this is the man who Jesus once offhandedly called Satan. That would stick with you if, you know, it happened. And then, and then he goes to the Mount of Transfiguration and like Moses and Elijah show up and Peter is like not really at all paying attention to what's going on. And he's like, we could build tents. And then Jesus is like, oh, that's not how it's going to go. And then it all goes away. Or, or Jesus, you know, like the last time Peter sees Jesus before he dies, Luke tells us, there's like Peter and, and he's in the outer courtyard. And then there's this coal fire pit. And then Jesus is in the courtyard and Jesus goes, I don't know that guy. And the rooster crows, and Jesus and Peter make eye contact, and then Peter runs away. And like Peter, Peter really doesn't come off so well. He like runs off at the mouth, comes with the name. He betrays the man he loves most in the world. He really never knows what's going on. And then there's like this guy. It's like, what happened to this guy? Like this guy is like charming and funny. He's funny. I don't know if you catch this in the text, but the crowd goes, they are filled with new wine. And then Peter starts off his speech by going, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. These people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. That's a joke. Right? He's like, they can't be drunk. It's 9 a.m. And then he starts to do his sermon, right? Like Peter has this kind of like confidence about him almost. What would that be like? And he like, and he can sort of read scripture in a way and he like knows what's going on and he can look at these people and address them and there's this shift into Peter somehow. He goes from this like babbling, over-hungry, leadery guy who doesn't know what's happening to like Peter, the second best name in the New Testament. And then there's also this like change in the crowd. Do you know what I mean? So, so the crowd, if you were, I don't know, a Jew from the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, wherever that is, you come to Jerusalem for Passover. And you're like, well, we're here for Christmas. We might as well stay for New Year's. And so you stay 50 days over to Pentecost. And your Greek is probably rough at best. And you're being put up by like your cousin's cousin's cousin. And for the last 50 days, you like can't read any of the street signs. Don't know the language anybody else is speaking. I don't know if anyone here has been to Israel and tried to figure out what's for breakfast. But there's like a bunch of fish and bowls and bowls and bowls of perfectly white dairy products, which are all ostensibly different and are never labeled. And so, like, you don't know what you're eating. You don't know what anybody's saying. You don't know what's going on. You're far from home. And then all of a sudden, you, like, hear people speaking literally your language. And they're talking about God and this guy, Jesus. I mean, you've come here for 50 days, and now someone can talk to you in a way that gets to you. And you know they're not doing it by themselves because that guy's from the Galilee. That would make something feel real. No? And then also, Peter, who um, apparently skipped the day on like 
being kind to your audience, says this in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and he goes on. So, yeah, there's one way of looking at this in which Peter's like, you guys killed Jesus. And he's definitely saying that. However, there's this funny way in which Peter kind of tells their story. Right? So he's like, you know this. You were around for this. Like maybe some of these people traveled with Jesus and they saw the miracles. They were part of like the big crowds that didn't know him, know him. But they knew who he was and they knew what he was about. They knew what he was saying. And they saw what he did, attested by signs and wonders, as you know. And then he comes into Jerusalem with the triumphal entry the Friday before Passover. And there's, you know, some buzz about that. And he turns over the temple and he has some stuff to say and he has some showdown with the religious leaders and they watch it all. They watch all of that. They like see him and what he does and who he is. And they still think we could kill this guy and get away with it. Like they still, they still are sort of agents of the crucifixion. You'd think if you really knew Jesus, you wouldn't kill him. Except evidently, perhaps not until the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes and this crowd who previously literally stabbed Jesus in the heart, it says they're cut to the heart by Peter's words. There's this way in which the presence of the Spirit makes a change in the crowd that they can see Jesus differently. They can see, they can act, actually, actually, they can actually see what he's about and, and what they did before and what now it means to have crucified him. You didn't just kill a criminal, you killed God. There's all these changes in Peter and in the crowd in Israel and there's, there's also this kind of shift in like, I guess you'd call it the theological history of the world. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, who's my best dead friend, after he was in his undergrad, gave this sermon where he, he talks about, um, it's a little weird that in every ancient culture, people tell stories of walking with the gods. Even the Bible has one. In Genesis, it says that God used to walk in the Garden of Eden because he liked the feeling of the cool at the end of the day. It's like, it's like since we've had our oldest cultural memories, we've wanted to remember a time when God is with us, that we're near to God, we're made at least to desire to be near to God. And when Jesus is on earth, you get 30 solid years of that, walking around with God, and then Jesus is gone. But the Holy Spirit falls. And from God's point of view, God took, you know, a little 10-day break, and then the Holy Spirit fall, and it says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, from Pentecost onwards, there's this shift. Where if you want to be in God's presence, if you want to be with God, be with the Spirit, which is really great, because you don't have to go anywhere to be with the Spirit. The Spirit can always be precisely where you are. There's a shift in Peter and in the crowd and in like the history of the world. There's this opportunity to be with God in such a way that even Jesus' resurrection can't quite pull the trick off. Gordon Fee, who's a, who is a well-known biblical scholar, is, he's not dead yet, has had this idea in one of his books that, you know, Jesus is kind of the objective, whoop, the objective historical pole of Christian faith. He's really real. He really does this stuff. You know, if you take a video camera and you watch 
back through history, you will see Jesus doing real things. But the Spirit is kind of like the subjective personal pole of Christian faith. Objective and historical, subjective and personal. If you want the truth of Christianity to be your reality, well, why don't you try the Spirit? I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways in which we sort of move more deeply into Christian faith. Uh, when you come to church, you get this opportunity to, to remind yourself of some things. It's like God is God and that we're on this journey together, that God is worthy of worship and that that's kind of great. You, you know, occasionally somebody talks to you and maybe reminds you of some stuff. We do all that. And then, and then there's other Christians who remind us that making Christianity real has everything to do with the kind of change God wants to see in the world. As the Bible says, remember the poor and the widower and the widow and the, and the sojourner. And I've got other friends who really, really like the high church liturgical stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like sensory overload, like men with incense and full circles and a choir the size of New Jersey with a pipe organ the size of the Empire State Building. And it's just like the sensory overload of it. It sort of hits them in the chest. And that's all real and good and might be for you. Fabulous. But there's this other part, there's this one moment where Christianity gets made real. Not because of anything we do, but because of what God does. And that's the spirit. The spirit can be in any of that stuff, in the justice and in the liturgy, in the breaking of bread and of prayers. And, but it's the spirit who is God trying to make Christianity real. So I've heard a lot of Pentecost sermons in my day. It's a short day, but it's been a day. And um, like 60% of them usually leave me feeling like I haven't seen enough miracles for this all to be real for me. After all, right, like the, the, it seems like the, the story in Pentecost is that you know it's the Holy Spirit because all these people that couldn't possibly know Italian are speaking Italian suddenly. And you're like, oh, it's a miracle. It's like it's supernatural. Nobody could ever do that. Ah, it's great. And then you're like, so it must be the Holy Spirit. And I don't know what you plan on doing later today, but I doubt you're going to start suddenly speaking Italian. But there are these other stories in the Bible, and I'll just give you one, where, where the Holy Spirit is just as real and in present and moving as he is in the book of Acts, but it's immensely subtle. So, so after the resurrected, there's this moment where the resurrected Jesus is with his disciples, and he does that thing where he beams into the room, and he says this, peace be with you. When he had said this, this is John chapter 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. No languages, no crowd in the street, no smoke show, no fireworks, just... Receive the Holy Spirit. And that's like it. And if it's Jesus, you assume it works. So sometimes there are these moments where it is crazy drama. And it's precisely supernatural because nobody could do it. And other times it is so quiet, it's almost a vanishing breath and barely noticeable. Um, I'm still at the stage of my life where breakups matter. Do you know what I mean? And so um, I had a bad one a little while ago. And um, I went to D.C. to be with some friends. Dave and Kate, they're probably not watching, but if you are, hi. Uh, Dave and Kate, and I, dang it. I walked into their house, a, a sniveling, skinny white boy, very sad and brokenhearted. 
and they hugged me in their arms and I cried a single tear. And then they gave me this book called The Life of the Beloved by Henry Nouwen, which was written in like the 80s. It was two friends who gave me a book. And on like every single page, this dead Belgian Catholic priest had something to say like exactly where I was at. You might just think it's a good book. And it is a good book. But it also is the spirit at work in a person's life. So sometimes it's that. Your friend gives you a book. Other times, it is a touch more dramatic. So as you've heard, my father, well, we'll start here instead. I was teaching uh, at a school in the UK when I lived there for a year, a class on theology, those poor, poor students. And can you imagine, I ran out of things to say one day. I know. And um, so I thought, you know what? We'll pray to end the hour. And then I was fairly full of myself, and I was like, behold, I'm a very spirit-led teacher, for I have asked the students to pray, and also forsooth humble, for I will pray with them. So I sit down with this group of students. It's me and this guy and this other guy, Stuart. And, you know, this guy is great. He's from Jamaica, ex-con, coming back to, to prepare for ministry at this school. And then Stuart. Stuart's from way up north. Stuart was kind of burned by a big Holy Spirit church, which happens all the time. And, but he was coming back to it. And so I'm there praying with them. And, and Stuart goes, I have a vision. I've told this story before. He goes, I have a vision. And I think it's from God. And I was like, cool. That's a real thing. That happens. He said, I think it's for you. I was like, great, lay it on me. He said, it's really weird though. I was like, that's okay. He's like, it's so weird to think it's for God. He's like, Stuart, just tell, just tell me the vision. And he goes, I saw this, I see this barn. It's like big red American style barn. And inside there's a ping pong table. And, and people are, are playing, you're playing ping pong with Jesus. And it's kind of a round robin thing. So like someone will come in and then you'll put them in and go out. And I... Um, I was just wondering if that meant anything to you. <laughs> and I said, uh, yes, yes, it does. He was like, oh, really? Well, you've heard this. When my father was a preteen boy, he was raised on a farm in Wisconsin. And on the farm, there's a big American-style barn. And my, um, because my sister's graduating, my grandmother and my two uncles are here, so they can corroborate this. Remember what we talked about last night? Um, yeah, there's a barn, and inside the barn there was a ping pong table. And um, uh, this story got told a couple weeks ago when my dad beat my uncle Fred, and then Fred threw him into the milk vat. It's okay. He's really dealt with his issues. And um, uh, I, I have all these stories about my dad in a barn playing ping pong in Wisconsin. So when we, would, when we didn't want to go to sleep, me and my sisters, we would kind of stage this little rebellion. And, and we'd get in bed and we'd say, tell us farm stories. And we had this chant that started the stories. We'd go, daddy lived on a farm with a dog named Jinx and a cat named Figaro, another dog named Sundance Kid, and a cow named Fudd, and a cow named Elmer, and a cow named Bonnie, and a cow named Clyde, and a horse named Chestnut in Wisconsin. And then we could tell the story. And so I have all these stories that are like deep in me about my dad in an American-style barn playing ping pong in Wisconsin. And I didn't know God knew those stories. It had never occurred to me that God knew that or was around for that. And so it hit me like a ton of bricks, and Stuart said, well, what do you think it means? I was like, I don't know what it means, Stuart. I'll figure it out. And so I went into the chapel, and I prayed. And you know, you know how a lot of times you pray and you have to leave a message? Well, he picked up. <laughs> and I was like, um, what does the vision mean, Jesus? And I heard this voice, not out loud, say, it means I'm your dad. I have good parents. I just have human parents. And so they can only go so far. 
And I, it felt like God kind of went through the library of my memories and started pulling out books that were about my parents and saying, like, you know, in a way, these are about me now. Sometimes it's fireworks and drama. Sometimes it's just a book. But the spirit is active, and there's that part of us that wants to meet Jesus, I think, like the real part that knows life and kind of its highs and its lows, where suffering and joy and the existential shape of your life changing. You want it to hit there. This is where I'm supposed to do the, like, put feet to your faith thing. But I have to be honest, I have no idea how you would feet to the faith the Spirit. The Spirit is the Spirit. And He does what He wants. And so, so maybe the best I could suggest is, how about this week, if you don't do this already, give yourself some time to think a bit seriously and a touch joyfully about what it would mean for Christianity really to be something God does, that the Spirit does. You don't have to muster Christianity being real for you or for somebody else. You don't have to like fake it till you make it. But if you, if you trust the Spirit, that the Spirit is working, that in big ways and little ways, you'll start to see that, the Spirit working. So like maybe it changes the way you do your job. Maybe it changes the way you parent or the relationships in your life aren't accidental or something somebody said to you a long time ago. It kind of like comes to the forefront and starts to stick in a different way. I don't know. You know what it would be. But that's the best I got, that maybe this week we can just remember that it's the Spirit who makes it all real. So why don't you stand and let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, Scripture says that the Father has handed you the Spirit and that you hand the Spirit to us. And so we just ask that you'd keep doing that, that the Spirit would be poured out on us individually and collectively for the sake of your kingdom, for your glory, and for the good of our lives. Human life is better with you. I think we're built for you. And so we ask for that loving presence of your spirit to be with us, to pick us up when we fall down, to push us when we need pushing, to hold us when we need holding, to make the truth of you real for us until that day when the kingdom of God will be all there is. We ask all of this in your own name. Amen.